The fact that the human brain is still so wired to perceive difference is a real challenge in our global society. I do believe that the survival of our planet and our species is going to depend on seeing humans as human, period, end of story. You're a human, I'm a human. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I've Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I will be your host again this week. Today, we are very blessed again to have another amazing guest, Dr. Helen Reese. Dr. Reese is a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is director of the Empathy and Relational Science Program at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and is widely considered the leading expert on the topic of empathy. In 2012, Dr. Reese founded Empathetics.com, which is an organization that provides empathetic training for healthcare, business, education, and law enforcement. She has devoted her career to the art and science of healing relationships. Her research has been published in leading medical journals and has won many awards. Her groundbreaking empathy training research, which was highlighted in a 2012 New York Times article, was the first study to demonstrate that empathy can indeed be taught. This was the answer to decades of major media attention demanding more empathic care from medical professionals. Helen's amazing TEDx talk titled The Power of Empathy has been viewed almost 600,000 times so far. I saw it. It's amazing. If you haven't seen it, go do it as soon as this podcast is over. Her new book, The Empathy Effect, has been translated, Helen, I think in 10 different languages now. Is that correct? It's been licensed in 10 countries. That's fantastic. Dr. Reese and her teams are dedicated to transforming healthcare into compassionate care systems. And I'm especially excited to have her on this podcast, especially during a time when we need empathy more than ever. Thank you, Helen, for accepting my invitation. It's okay that I call you Helen, right? Absolutely. You know, you and I have so much in common. We have both dedicated our careers to bringing compassion back into healthcare. In full disclosure, You and I have never met before. In fact, up until just a few minutes ago, we've never even spoken, but I'm a big fan. And when I decided to do this podcast, you were on my short wish list, if you don't mind. But I thought about just taking a shot inviting you. And I think I contacted you through LinkedIn and immediately you got back to me. You were gracious with your time. And I want to thank you again for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so this is the time in each podcast that I renew my promise to the audience that by the end of this episode, you will feel inspired and you will have learned valuable lessons to be a better and more compassionate communicator. So get ready, audience. You're about to be blown away. So thanks, Helen, for coming again. I'm so excited. Helen, as I mentioned before, my big hurdle in preparing this talk was really getting it down to a reasonable amount of time. I had so many questions for you after I read your book and I've known about you for a while now. So there's just so many questions that I want to ask. I'll try to keep it down to just a few questions. 
But let's start off with really what we need to do is all get on the same page. So let's start off by, if you would, just defining what empathy is. And most times we get that mixed up between empathy, sympathy, and compassion. And if you don't mind just telling the audience how you perceive empathy and how that relates to those other terms. Sure. Those terms are often confused. So it's a great place to start. So empathy is the newest of those terms. It's only been around for a little over 100 years. And it is defined as the ability to feel with and understand the emotions and situations of others as if they were our own without losing the as if quality. So we temporarily, our brains are hardwired to resonate with the feelings of others. And we have the capacity to use our imaginations to perceive the situations of others. And because of this really unique capacity, human beings and some animals too, are moved to help. And so when we perceive suffering in others, we feel something and we're often able to imagine what that might be like. And that creates empathic concern. And once we feel concern, we're then at a decision point of whether we're going to act on what we have perceived or whether we're not going to. And if we take the action, which can be as brief and simple as a caring look, a touch on the arm, a phone call, or making a large donation to a nonprofit organization, Those acts are acts of compassion because I view compassion as the action arm that is motivated by empathy. Sympathy, on the other hand, is a really old term that really recognized that people have similar feelings and that we catch emotions from one another. But it has really kind of morphed to mean feeling bad for people, taking pity on them, and feeling sorry for them. And it's a much more sort of self-focused feeling, like I feel so bad, like that happened to me too. I feel so bad for you. Whereas empathy really stays with the other person's experience and mirrors that for the other person. The key word that you said was imagination there. And when I talk to physicians, it's so important that we do imagine or put ourselves in the other person's shoes, especially before we give tragic news to a patient, but even during genuine interactions with patients, how do you train that? I know that you do a lot of training of young physicians. How do you get them to that point where, you know, we'll talk about burnout later on, but how do you get them to that point where you train them to just imagine for a second that they're the patient and go from the sympathy to the empathy to the compassion? Well, it's not a one-step process, but it does begin with opening our perceptions. So one of my favorite sayings is the face is a roadmap of emotion and it's the only part of our bodies that we don't routinely cover. So if we just start with looking at a human face, there is a wealth of information about the emotional state that one of our key pieces of training is just to open your eyes, get your head out of the computer and out of your iPhone or whatever you're looking up and really just appreciate that there's a unique human being sitting in front of you 
that's not just bringing a broken arm, an illness or a disease to you, but a whole person with a background and relatives and a past and a future. And just to take that moment and recognize that this person, you know, may be hanging on every word you say. And if you don't first perceive where they are emotionally, you can create a disconnection, you know, in a half a second. So one of the things that I really love about your book is that you really go into the neuroscience of empathy. And we think that empathy is something that either A, you have, or B, you don't. And you've proven beyond a doubt that I think that's true, that empathy can be taught. But empathy sometimes is thought of as just a soft thing. But there's actually neurotransmitters and there's a science basis for empathy. And it's based on survival, correct? Absolutely right. I mean, if you really think about the most basic function of empathy, it starts with mother-infant bonding. You can imagine if a mother is not moved by the sound of her crying baby or can't feel a pit in her stomach if her baby is sick or about to, you know, step on glass or do something really dangerous, not too many human infants would survive. So empathy is built in to the human caring for offspring. And of course, it extends because we don't live in isolation. We live in communities. And it's thought to be hardwired because especially in the days of hunter-gatherers, most of the time, males would go off hunting and the women would be left in the village where they had to cooperate and collaborate to take care of children while some of them sought food and, you know, picked berries or whatever they did. And that they had to perceive not only their infants' cries or distress, but those of their you know, fellow mothers and their children to keep the community safe and well. That's great. And later, my big question at the end, we're going to talk about in groups, and I can't wait to talk to you about that, but we're going to save that for later. A question that you might not have been expecting today is I want to talk to you about, before we go on to talk about more about empathy and and communication training, your relationship with Alan Alda, because, and I'll tell you why, I have a special story about Alan Alda. I'm a big fan of his, and I know that he wrote the forward to your book. People ask me on a regular basis, what made you decide to go into medicine? And without hesitating, my answer is Hawkeye Pierce. (laughs) And it's exactly true. And Alan Aldous talks about in your book, and he talks about it in his book. And I love his book. The title is amazing. If I understand you, when I have this look on my face, I just love that title. But he talks about very similar things that you speak about. It was very important to Alan Aldous that the character of Hawkeye Pierce was not just funny, but that he was a real person. And Alan Alda really showed that he was a doctor who cared. That character, Hawkeye Pierce, had empathy flowing and compassion. And you can see that he would cry and he would get upset. He'd get mad. He'd go through anger. And it sounds weird, but I'm a big MASH fan. I could probably give you the lines of every MASH that was ever shown on TV. But That's the kind of doctor I want to be. How do we teach doctors how to do that? How do we teach them to feel that empathy? You spoke a little bit about imagining being the person in there, putting yourself in that shoes, but tell me about your empathy training when you train young doctors. So I'll get to that, but I just, I am a true fan of Alan Alda. And I just want to share that the way we got connected is when he reached out to me 
see if he could interview me for his book because he understands empathy like no other when it comes to putting himself in the shoes of others and being a genuinely caring, connected person. But he wanted to learn about the neuroscience. And you know he spent 10 years interviewing scientists on Frontiers of American Science. And the way he could fully immerse himself in wanting to learn how empathy works was such a great example of his two interests coming together, being a TV doctor, but really also wanting to understand how do we teach this and how do we enable this in physicians. So I guess it really goes back to the reason why I got interested in empathy training. First, I really was watching a lot of burnout, a lot of patient dissatisfaction. This is going back 10 to 15 years. As you know, you know, in the introduction of the electronic health record, there was a lot of distraction in having to learn new ways to input information. It was requiring physicians to load information into computers, some of whom had never taken a typing course. And so uh, there really was a breakdown in the doctor-patient, patient-doctor relationship because we just didn't have the focus. And as a psychiatrist, I was hearing a lot of pain about this, feeling that people just weren't paying attention to them, didn't hear them, asked the same question over and over again. And I could see that this was really causing harm. You know, patients were losing motivation to stop smoking, to lose weight, to stay on their medication. And that's the first oath we take when we graduate from medical school is first, do no harm. And I realized that through these communication gaps and lapses that we were doing harm. And so I reasoned that if empathy can be beaten out of people, we certainly should be able to put it back in. (laughs) Because most people who choose medicine and nursing professions, they have some empathy, they care about people, or they would be doing other things. And so it just didn't seem right that well-meaning people were suddenly just not connecting in a way that that was helpful to people. So I studied the neuroscience of empathy for a couple of years. I did a fellowship at Harvard and got to really immerse myself in that literature. And that's where I realized that this is a brain-based capacity. It's not just a nice to have, like being nice skill. It's a survival skill. And if we could get physicians to lift their heads up, and I mean physicians, nurses, medical students, residents, the whole team, PAs, NPs, and really connect with the humanity, I really believe that that is what's needed to really engage people in being partners in their own health care. And so it became a real quest of mine to understand how the brain perceives, processes, and expresses empathy and compassion, and then to figure out ways that we could kind of expand this awareness building and perspective taking through some classroom instruction. And that's when I did a study to see if what I put together actually could be perceived by patients in a study in a randomized control trial. And one of the things that I noted early on in my story that I talk about in my book about how I saw an incredible doctor mentor of mine who was a very compassionate person who couldn't communicate that compassion to a patient. And that's what made me so interested 
he just, in the story, he just comes out and tells someone, your baby's dead. And I knew this man was such a compassionate person as most physicians are empathetic and empathic. And so I really understand what you're saying. It's, it's all about the patient experience. And I think as physicians, we all get tied down. We get busy as nurses. But I also think, and I'd like you to comment on this, there's a lot of communication techniques out there that a lot of people don't know. A lot of people don't understand. And when you teach them these techniques, like tone of voice, which I'll ask you about, they can really convey that empathy that they had inside, but maybe didn't know. When I was a young resident, I did a rotation with the doctor who delivered me. That's how old he was. (laughs) And he practiced almost 45 years and was never sued. And I had a great role model. And he was able to look at each and every patient that came in there, whether he met them or not, he was best friends with them in one minute. And he looked in their eyes really, really close. And I had a great role model. So talk a little bit about, you, you talk about the acronym that you use, empathy, a little bit about how some practical tips on how physicians or anybody, I mean, it's all about building rapport, right? And so give us some tips. There's a great example you talk about in your book, nice shirt and the different ways you change the tone. I love that because that's something that I also discuss all the time. So tell us about these, some of these techniques that you can give to our audience. Well, you're starting with the middle of the acronym. Is that where you want me to start? (laughs) I got to keep my promise. You've already inspired them. So I want to keep my promise. We'll give them some tips on how they can, in the short version, I know this takes a long time to learn, but just little tips about eye contact, posture, all that stuff. Okay. So after doing all this neuroscience research, I just thought, how do we compress this into, you know, teachable skills and human behaviors that people are going to remember? And, you know, on a walk in the woods one day, it sort of came to me that the word empathy held like most of the behaviors that express or perceive empathy. And so the first one you already said is eye contact. And so we all think we're making eye contact when we say, hi, Mrs. Smith, how are you? But one tip I give is to notice the person's eye color. And when you... I don't mean staring at anybody, but when you meet someone's gaze with intention, it's a very different experience. And if you glance up and say, oh, hi, Mrs. Smith, how are you doing? And then you start typing. So right in that first second, you have a choice to either connect meaningfully or to just treat the person more like an illness or an injury. The M in empathy stands for muscles of facial expression because there's no F in empathy for face. (laughs) So I had to fudge that one a little bit. But part of our empathetics training has facial expression decoding techniques so that we learn the subtle differences between anger, disgust, contempt, and sadness, for example, they all sound very different, but it's hard for people to see the difference unless they get training. And we also just try to get people to look at others' faces, because as I said, they're a roadmap of emotion. Mixed facial expressions are very common, and suppressed emotions are common in patients, so they won't you know, necessarily show you that they're confused or angry. That's why we have to become better at reading the face. The P stands for posture. And there's a lot you can tell about a person's mood just by how they sit or stand. And also we 
really encourage physicians to sit down at eye level so they are not in a dominant position, which doesn't really foster collaboration and a cooperative conversation. The A stands for affect, which all of your doctor audience and nurses will know stands for emotion. And many people have used the term, if you can name it, you can tame it. So if we can name an emotion, like that person looks really anxious or agitated, just naming it in our heads makes us attend to that differently than if we are just getting kind of catching the agitation and feeding off of it. And then deciding, I need to be more soothing. I need to help calm this person down. T is tone of voice. And of all these empathic behaviors, tone of voice actually conveys the most about what we are truly feeling. And so in the example you gave, that's a nice shirt compared to, that's a nice shirt, (laughs) or that's a nice shirt. So one of them sounds like a genuine compliment. Another one sounds critical. And the other one sounds like, I can't believe you're actually going to walk out of the house wearing that. (laughs) Yes. Even the way you say, how are you? When you meet someone, it's something that you notice all the time. People will see somebody in the hallway and say, how are you? And it's clear they don't really care. You're just being polite and you're walking by and the other person can say, my dog died and you probably wouldn't even notice it. But you can come and say, hey, how are you? And that shows that you really care with how you smile with your eyes or with your eyebrows. You know, we talk about that all the time. So yeah, tone of voice, I think, is something that most people don't pay attention to. But once it's brought up and they realize that I think they notice it a lot more. It's something that a lot of people are not aware of. Like, I think this is one of the ways that couples often get into arguments is that they'll say things to each other where they're not aware of just how like disrespectful or disgusted they sound. They just think, oh, no, all I said was, you know, X, Y, and Z, but it's the tone. And 90% of what we are talking about is conveyed in tone. So that's, it's really important. And there are specific skills, like trying to match the volume of the patient that you're talking with. So that if someone talks softly and slowly, that we don't come with a booming, you know, loud, fast voice. And just We talk about many adjustments people can become more conscious of with tone. The famous director, Gary Marshall, I saw something on him, a documentary about him. They were talking about when he directed during the scene, when the scene was filming, he would turn his back on the actors and just listen to the tone and the cadence and the inflection of the voice and would be able to say that's a wrap or do it again without ever seeing the scene. And that just is a great example, I think, of how important tone is. Definitely. So H stands for hearing the whole person, not just hearing and listening, but embedded in hearing the whole person is perspective taking, which means viewing the person and looking at their lives through their lens, not our own. I think about like taking off my glasses and putting on yours so that I can see the world as you see it. Because many people will say, oh, Treat the person like you would want to be treated. We really need to treat the person like they would want to be treated. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hearing the whole person gets at that cognitive arm of empathy, which is perspective taking. And other people have talked about perspective getting. 
some people will say, well, why are we just trying to imagine? Why don't we just ask the person <laughs> mm-hmm. so we can get their perspective? But sometimes we're thinking about a patient before they ever come into the office. You know, we'll know that, you know, a woman whose husband died, you know, four weeks ago is having chest pain. And, you know, we might think about that woman differently than if she were just coming in with chest pain, because we can maybe imagine that there's a lot going on there. And then the final letter of the empathy acronym is Y, which is your reaction to the person. And that is, to me, like the key piece, because we all do share emotions. And if we are at a pretty mindful place when we enter a patient's room, and all of a sudden we're feeling either annoyed or agitated or confused, we must consider that we've just picked up their emotion because we weren't feeling that before. And that's the importance of settling ourselves before we walk into a patient's room or bedside so that if we start to pick up other feelings, we can really think about why am I having this reaction? And if we are suddenly feeling agitated, you know, maybe we're picking up that that person is agitated. Or if all of a sudden we're annoyed, and this is so important for medical professionals, Think about, could that person be annoyed? (laughs) And I'm Mm -hmm. feeling annoyed because they're annoyed at us. Like maybe (laughs) we said we'd come back in 20 minutes with some results and now it's four hours later and now they're a little bit nudgy or, you know, put out and they're not being super respectful. And so is it our place to now be annoyed at the patient or should we be really thinking maybe they're annoyed because I didn't follow through with what I said and maybe there's an apology that's needed. It's important to know that, you know, we're talking a lot about healthcare because you and I are both physicians, but these are great tips, no matter whether you're in healthcare or not. In fact, a lot of my audience is not in the healthcare sector. In fact, every other week in this podcast, we generally have a guest not from healthcare at all. So these are communication. As I say, if you can learn to communicate and convey empathy or compassion, you're pretty much going to be great in both your professional and your personal life. The people who are good communicators, people who show empathy, as you say in your book, just tend to do better in life, better for themselves and seem to go further. So it's really important that these tips that Dr. Reese is giving us are important for everybody and not just for medical professionals. I know time's running out, so I want to get to my great question that I've been waiting to ask you for a long time because the, the times here are very difficult times in the world right now. And you talk about in your book about in-grouping. And I've long known, they say neuroscientists have said that within the first second that you meet somebody, your chemicals in your brain have already decided that whether that person's like or unlike or friend or foe, correct? So this is something happens quickly. And I I do this talk sometimes about that I call what happens in the second second. Hmm. And let's discuss about how that's you talked about empathy and the in-grouping, and that really came from survival and evolution. But now we're not the same as we were when we were in little tribes and caves, and we're more of a global people. How do you get there? Because it's in your DNA, per se. How do you get to the second second where we can then all be one? That's really the $10 billion question, isn't it? You know, I think it's so important to recognize that 
it's not that long ago, given human history, that we were often separated by mountains, rivers, oceans, where we never saw people that weren't like us. And if we did, it was usually an invasion or somebody who was going to compete for scarce resources. And so recognizing other was crucial to survival. And that unfortunate change where nothing separates us now, you know, except COVID shut down, <laughs> but, you know, we can travel anywhere, see people that are totally unlike us. The fact that the human brain is still so wired to perceive difference is a real challenge in our global society. I do believe that the survival of our planet and our species is going to depend on seeing humans as human. Period. End of story. You're a human. I'm a human. And all these labels and identities and all these things that we attribute to one another that separate us, we're in a very critical moment in history where we have to challenge these automatic fears, mistrust, difference, competition, envy. There's so many feelings that go with perceiving otherness. So I do think it's the question of our time. And I think we're at a level of national discourse about this that's different than it's been before because of our great connectivity. We have all seen the videos of George Floyd dying. These ideas that certain people deserve tough treatment, like we just can't accept these things anymore. So our work is truly aimed at humanizing everyone and to stop dehumanizing anyone. Tony Robbins talks about building rapport and defines it as a finding commonality between two people. And I think that is where the key lies. And when I coach physicians on patient experience or I talk to people about teach them how to build rapport, it's all about finding commonality. And although your tribal response would be that person looks different, once you can understand that no matter what they look like or where they're from, there is something in common. And that gets you into the second second, if you will. And when I discuss how to improve patient experience scores to physicians and how to make that patient experience better and build a relationship with the patient, it's been shown you can do that in 56 seconds. A lot of it is just as you spoke about eye contact, posture, mirroring, but it's also finding commonality. And as a physician, I'll walk into, I'm a neonatologist, so I take care of babies. So it's not the patient experience I'm looking at, it's the family experience, but I'll walk into a room and a mother who's very upset about her baby being in the neonatal ICU. If that mother is upset, and before I just introduce myself, I could find, sometimes it'll be a book on the table or they'll have a TV Sometimes they're upset about something that happened. Maybe they're angry about something that didn't go well. And I see that they have a New York Yankees hat on or they're wearing a Yankee shirt or they have a 973 area code when I call them on the phone. If I can just say, oh my goodness, are you from New Jersey? Because I recognize this area code. It's an instant bond. And that's what you were talking about in grouping. So the in group might not be our group here. I think we can find an in group with anyone. Don't you agree? I sure hope so. I mean... I think one of the most powerful ways to 
find common ground is people who have suffered in similar ways. You know, so if you've been through a loss and your patient is going through a loss, you know, to say, I really get this, you know, I've been so close to this myself. And people who are in support groups together, let's say something tragic like losing a child or a teenager in a car accident. It's amazing how quickly the differences between those people disappear when they have what you're calling common ground. Like, so common suffering is an incredibly powerful bond, but it really does mean exposing vulnerability, right? Yes. And that I think is the key. Like we're all human. We all have our foibles. We've all had our disappointments, our rejections, our traumas, our whatever. And when we share these things, that's what unites human to human. But if we stand apart in judgment or superiority or whatever, that does not allow these human bonds to form. And if you're a physician who's speaking to a patient, the first thing you want to do, I use an acronym called program, the G is for genuine. If you can show that patient you're just not a doctor, that you're a real person, you're from New Jersey, you've had a rough day because your five-year-old wouldn't go to kindergarten and you got off to a late start, or I'm going on vacation. Wow, where are you going, Dr. Orsini? I'm going to see my family. The important thing is, too, for leaders, right? What's the difference between a manager and a leader? A manager doesn't know how to communicate and convey empathy, right? But a leader knows how to do that. And the best bosses I've ever worked with were real people. They didn't stand up on the top. And I think that's that goes back to that commonality, right? I would hope that there are a lot of managers with empathy, and I'm sure there are. But I think what you're saying is the managerial role might be just to get tasks done, but a leadership role is to build morale, you know, inspiration and to connect people. So Yeah, that brings you to a different level. That's my point exactly. of the whole thing. So why is it so important to empathy in that? We're not changing our first, second, or those neurotransmitters or those tribal instincts instincts immediately. But back to the empathy, if we can train empathy, like you're doing such a great job in medicine and in business, and we can train people to be more empathetic, to be better communicators, to find commonality, then maybe we can go to that global scene that you're talking about because we can, it's going to take time to change our DNA, but we can fix the second second very quickly. And I think that's how this relates. I really love that idea of the first and the second second, because, you know, empathy is automatic in most people. There are certainly some people who just don't have it, but it's the exception, not the rule. Many people feel empathetic and we're able to shut it off. And especially if we're tired, hungry, overworked, overwhelmed, sick, that all interferes with expressing empathy. And so I think it's so important for the physician and health profession audience to understand that self-empathy, which is the last chapter in my book, it probably should be the first one, that if we don't treat ourselves with proper care, sleep, nutritious food, exercise, if we don't fill the tank we are going to get depleted and it'll show up as burnout. And when we're burned out, we tend to objectify people, refer them by their, to them as their disease or their condition, you know, instead of 
the human being that they are. So empathy is really a input output, just like so many things. There's afferent and efferent. Mm-hmm. We've got to take good care to put us in the best position to give good care. I think that's a great way to finish this whole interview. Take care of yourself first, because we've all been there before where we get, for lack of a better word, grumpy, Mm -hmm. and we lose our empathy. We talked about in-grouping and that we tend to have empathy towards people that are like us more than people that are unlike us. So I think the solution to that is to find commonality and perceive everybody as like you, and it'll be easier to empathize. And I think the work you're doing is just absolutely amazing. In my small way, I'm doing the same thing, but I really love the way you're doing all the teaching. Your book is phenomenal. Your TED Talk is great. What's next on the horizon for you? You're doing so much. I mean, I think, as you said earlier, we're in a very critical time in the world where we need empathy more than ever. And you might be noticing it's mentioned in the news like almost constantly. The most exciting New development is being approached by law enforcement to help police forces to humanize many of the situations that they find themselves in, many of the challenges, because our police are being called in to take care of mental health issues, domestic violence issues, you know, violence issues, and getting a cat out of a tree issues, like they pretty much have to do everything. And, you know, many of them are being asked to take roles that they're really not trained to do. So I see this as an opportunity to really make a difference in how just everybody, every professional is trained to, like, appreciate the human being in front of us and to bring our best to every interaction. I think it's great that you're starting to work with law enforcement. I, in fact, come from a whole family of law enforcement. I'm the only physician in my family. Everyone else is police officers or retired police officers, my father, my uncle, my brother, my cousins. And so I think the topic that we really have to speak about is that self-empathy for themselves because they talk about burnout. My father said to me when I was very little, Anthony, my mother and father, the only ones that call me Anthony, everyone else calls me Tony. There's only two people in the world that have to be perfect, doctors and police officers. And he said that for many, many years. And I think that that pressure is something that needs to be acknowledged. So that self-empathy that you talk about is so important because you do get jaded and physicians the same exact way. We have a highest burnout rate of any profession right now. And so taking care of ourselves, I think, is really a great thing. So if you want to be empathic towards other people, you have to first like yourself. It's called putting on your own oxygen mask first. It's We get this instruction every time we're on an airplane, but so few people apply it to self-care. People think of self-care as being selfish. Yeah, there are definitely ways people are selfish, but attending to your own physical, emotional, and social needs is just critical to being effective in the world. I love that analogy. Put your own oxygen mask on before you can help anyone else. And that's fantastic. So, Ellen, thank you so much for doing this interview. I could talk to you for hours, but I know you have to go. It was really a great interview. You certainly inspired the audience because I think it's going to make people speak about empathy more. The more we speak about it, the more we're aware of it, the more we're aware of when our empathy slides up and our slides down, we can catch ourselves finding that commonality using the great techniques that you gave us, communication techniques with the eye contact and the empathy acronym is really going to help them. And I think 
especially when you're doing difficult conversations, which is what the name of this podcast is. So I really want to thank you for being here. And I just love the work you're doing. And I'm just, I'm anxious to see what your next big thing is. And with the law enforcement, I think that's awesome. Well, I might be picking your brain about that. (laughs) I remember as a kid, someone would say to me, who's a police officer in your family? And I'd say my uncle, three cousins, father and grandfathers. And they said, well, why didn't you go into police academy? My answer was, I'm afraid of guns. So I decided to do something easy, like to become a physician. So um, so easy, right? It's so easy, right? So, yeah. but thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you for being such a gracious host and for taking the time to be out here. And thank you for inspiring our audience. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a genuine pleasure getting to know you. Thank you. And I hope we can speak again sometime soon. Yes, I'm sure we will. If you like this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe. Go ahead and download all the episodes. You'll see a new episode download every single Tuesday. If you need to learn more, please contact me at yourcdway.com. And Helen, how can they contact you? What's the best way? Best way is info at empathetics.com. Okay. Mm -hmm. So please contact Helen if you have any questions. If you're interested in her training, it's amazing. And go ahead. And I hope everyone has a great week and I will be here again next Tuesday. So thank you again. Have a great day. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.